Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015. It's the Hockey Pediocast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey Pediocast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining is my good buddy Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much. It's uh, it's Monday, so it's my day off. I'm I'm just jazzed to be on uh, the Pediocast. It's fun to do all of your shows every time, and uh, I'm just happy to be talking to you, Dmitry, as always. Yeah. Well, and I'm I'm excited. I'm always happy to have you on the show, of course. But um, you and I are gonna last time out um, late last week. I did a mailbag podcast with Emily Kaplan. I recommend everyone go check that out. And there were so many um, interesting, thoughtful questions from our listeners that came in that I kind of had a bit of an overflow, and I had some left over. And I figured you and I would go through it as well because we are in that period of the season now where it's kind of that a little bit of that lull. Like there's the traded line and we, it seems like we get so swept up and now when we talk about it and all the potential scenarios and the speculation, and then it feels like for the week after we like still kind of dissect how the guys look in their new uniforms and the fallout from that. But then now we're still not necessarily, I don't know, like the playoff races aren't necessarily that compelling to me for the most part. So it seems like we're just kind of killing time a bit till the postseason. I don't know if you feel that way. Yeah. I think it's like the same a group of teams that have been in that playoff race for the last little while now. So you've, if you've gone over it a couple times, you've gone over it a million times. You know, it, there's only so much you can say about it. With that said, I have an article upcoming on Sportsnet about the playoff <laughs> races. So please check that out. But uh, yeah, I, I feel like after a while, you kind of get bored of trying to to fill that in, and you, you gotta you gotta ask some questions. You gotta go in some different directions. Maybe get a little bit more esoteric and. Uh, more abstract well, so then you go to the mailbag right yes yeah well i mean with the playoff race like i know this is kind of it defeats the purpose of it because i think the nhl views the the loser point as um you know a net positive because it keeps teams in the race it keeps fan bases engaged for as long as possible because their team is still technically in it and it provides it kind of boosts that sort of artificially inflated parody that the nhl loves to uh boast about all the time but actually feel like it kind of has the opposite effect where it really takes the wind out of the race of it just because like you look at the standings and technically it's like oh my team's only four or five points out with 10 games left like that seems very doable but then it's like every single night it seems like all of these teams are playing in these 
three-point games and you watch some of the games yesterday uh, on Sunday in particular and it's like there were some games where it's like like that Islanders wild game it's like both teams are just like okay we you know we're in opposite conferences we could both definitely use a point let's just get to the play let's get to the overtime and then see what happens after that and then the Islanders score quickly as soon as both teams have been guaranteed at least one point and so all these games that are dishing out three points and each team involved is getting something like it makes I don't know if it makes it seem sort of like implausible that teams are actually going to rise up the standings. And when you, once you look at it that way, it really sort of um, kind of deflates the race as a whole. So I, I think the league definitely needs to do something about that moving forward. Yeah. I mean, I think we've been banging that drum for yeah, years and years happen. now that, you know, the, the win, the way the points are awarded in the standings needs to change. It probably won't happen. You're right. I, I think the league does like the artificially inflated parody and keeping teams in longer but you're right that when it gets to like game 65 or so the races are for the most part over so like you have more teams that stick in it from game like 40 to 65 where they might think they're in it for the trade deadline and there's some like manufactured excitement that way but by the end of the season or close to the end of the season it's so hard to make up that ground and like you said the teams that are looking to make the playoffs right now yeah they have 10 games left and you might be like two or three points out and you're like oh i can make that up but like Every team that you're trying to pass of those 10 games is probably going to win six of them, mm-hmm. you know, or at least get 60% least of the points. points. Yeah. So you're looking at 12 points. You have to get 16 points out of a possible 20 just to break even. So you better get that tiebreaker, right? So, like, at that point, can can any team that's on the edge of making the playoffs be expected to get 17 out of 20 available points at the end of the season? And then can that team expected to also compete in the first round, it kind of like it reminds me of uh, the Ottawa Senators a few years back when they went on that miraculous run and then they just got absolutely destroyed in the first round by a Canadians team that was good but not great. And you know, oftentimes we see that, and I think we saw it with the St. Louis Blues a little bit this season, which I know is one of our questions, but they went on that miraculous run to get back into the playoff race and now they're kind of running out of energy a little bit. Yeah, no, for sure. It's I mean, it's very tough to sustain, and, and then the 82 game. Uh, part of this equation is a whole other thing. But, I mean, I, I think the league is definitely going to prop up, especially if a team like the Arizona Coyotes makes the playoffs and sort of how there's all these stats of, like, oh, where they were around Christmas time or where they were in, in January and how they've made this surge up the standings. They're obviously going to point to that as an example that the system does work and the teams can make up that difference. But I think that is kind of more so an, an anomaly than... Uh, it's kind of the exception that proves the rule. But anyways, um, let's get into some of these questions because there are some good ones and we've got a bunch of them and we're going to try to hammer through as many of them as we can. And um, one of them was, and this is kind of an interesting one to, to start us off here, Matt A Matt underscore A underscore champ asks, uh, what's a bigger factor to winning, a good power play or a good penalty kill? Yeah, this one I found super interesting because mm-hmm. I have like my opinion on it. Right, but I, I don't think there's like so a far I don't think there's like a definitive scientific answer, right? Like I feel like yeah. obviously you can skin a cat many different ways. You could you could get by with a bad penalty kill and a good power play and vice versa, or being average both and being a dominant five on five team. There isn't just necessarily one way to be a successful hockey team, of course. Yeah, and and I feel like this is one of those things where like I don't even have a hypothesis. It's just like something that sounds logical in my head. And some people might hear me say it and be like, wow, this guy's an idiot. And some people might be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So I'm like, I'm not expecting any, you know, like brilliant uh, revelations here. But in my mind, like nobody is afraid of a good penalty kill, right? It is functional and it can really help you out. And, you know, maybe it allows you to play with a little bit more reckless abandon while, uh, you know, you're 
uh, at even strength and you're not afraid to take penalties. But if you have a wicked power play that's, you know, crushing it like uh, the, the Washington Capitals of the last 10 years, right? Teams are going to be afraid to take infractions against you. And that gives you a little bit more room to create offense at even strength. And I feel like that actually creates more positive impact at even strength than a great penalty kill does, right? There's that fear that in, that's introduced. So, like, if you're looking at just the impact of each special team, mm-hmm. they're essentially the same. But I think having a great power play also has a really positive impact at evens, and I think that's where the differentiation comes from. But that's just me. Yeah. Yeah, though it's a, it's a it's a really interesting sort of like philosophical question. I think, I mean, if you just look at um, like the top penalty kill teams this year versus the top power play teams this year, um, you know, there is a little bit of an overlap. But I think you know something you keep coming back to is like a good power play is generally a sign of a really uh, talented, skilled team, right? Like if you look at the top power play teams, it's Tampa Bay, uh, it's Boston, Winnipeg, Pittsburgh, San Jose, Toronto, Washington, Calgary. Like it's all the teams you'd expect there. Now you see Florida and Colorado maybe there as well in the top 10 in terms of efficiency. And it, it, it kind of checks out in the fact that both those teams, while they're flawed, have amazing top top lines and top top skilled players. And it makes sense that they also have a good power play. Whereas with a penalty kill, there's very few teams um, where, like Tampa Bay is the top penalty kill team, so maybe this this sort of just speaks to how good they are at every single thing. But there's like a couple couple guys there, like Blake Coleman on on uh, New Jersey or Michael Grabner now that he's back with Arizona or or Nancy Sorelli on Tampa Bay, where it's like they're like legitimate threats on the, on the penalty kill. But you're right, I don't think it's striking the fear into opposing coaches and being like, oh God, we can't. What do we got to, what are we going to do? Are we going to like kind of be a more conservative attack here in the power play just to compensate for these guys that might generate a chance every once in a while on the penalty kill? Like that's not a, a thing that's happening in your game plan. Yeah. I think the main thing is like the thing you have to watch out for on the, like while you're on the power play for aggressive penalty kills is those passes across the, the blue line. Right. And I think as much as uh, that's still a part of power plays, the point shot is drifting away a lot. So I, I'm noticing a lot more defensemen trying to get the puck in deep and, and uh, engaging the cycle a lot more. Hmm. So maybe there's like less of a risk of that with good power plays. I mean, I'd have to look into it more aggressively and, and see if you know uh, great power plays that take a, that create a lot of chances give up more chances as well. But I, I haven't <laughs> put in the work on that at this well, moment. Well, and I think um, yeah, I, I think it's like the power the power play. If you have the the weapons, you have the horses for it. Um, like it, it's kind of linked to winning in that way. I, I guess it's kind of like the chicken or the egg. But like, I feel like with penalty kills, it's a lot easier to um, devise a a game plan that'll sort of cover for you. Don't necessarily need to have uh, grade A penalty killers. You can kind of, or you can find those guys easier because they might be less expensive and they're just kind of fast guys who are kind of tenacious and and bug opposing guys with their speed but you're not necessarily paying for top penalty killers whereas with a power play no, yeah. like you can't really you're not going to take a, a, a guy and just be like okay like he's not really good but all of a sudden we're going to put him into the system and he's going to kill it as a power play guy like it, so I, I think that's the sort of differentiation when you know those two but it's it's the penalty kill is such a tough thing for us to to quantify i remember like you and i were talking about this i think even like last summer or, or two years ago and where we were doing a mail, similar mailbag and someone asked about uh, system versus actual player and sort of looking at the discrepancies between if a guy switched teams and whether he's carried over the penalty kill success of different teams. And we were talking about that as a potential fun 
exercise to do sometime down the road, but I feel like there's still a lot of, uh, a lot of work to be done in terms of quantifying and analyzing and actually uh, evaluating what goes into that penalty kill portion of the game. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I think you're right that for the most part, I mean, you probably still have to have some pieces like you can't have just a bunch of AHL pluggers and have great penalty kill. I think there's like certain skills that you need to have like guys who have good agility, right. To cut, to cover lanes, good sticks and the ability to just like get the puck out quickly, but you don't need to pay huge amounts of money to get eight decent penalty killers in your team. Whereas on the power play, you as much as power play offense is more system generated than even strength offense, hmm. you need to have player types, right? Like, I think this is the thing that, you know, living in Montreal, I've seen this year, the worst power play in the league. You have lots of playmakers on that team in uh, Max Domi, Jonathan Duran, and you have, you know, Brennan Gallagher, uh, Andrew Shaw for net front presence. So, like, you've got some pieces there, but the Canadians don't have a single bona fide sniper outside of Brendan Gallagher and Gallagher is sitting in the net front on the power play. So he mm-hmm. can't get a shot off. Right. So like they're deferring to Shea Weber who has a great shot on the power play, but you're still taking like, that should be a tertiary option to, to shoot from the point. Like power plays just don't do that anymore. Not successful ones. So without like, uh, this is the one area where I think they've really missed, uh, Alex Galchenyuk and Max Pacioretty. Pacioretty's never been a huge power play scorer, but his shot from the middle of the ice there where he would camp out was something that had to be respected by penalty killers, right? So he draws coverage, which opens lanes for other guys, and Alex Galchenyuk just had a lethal one-timer, and those two together worked really well. They don't have that anymore, so they just haven't been able to format a good power play all year long. It's been like hilarious to watch how inept they are despite having some pretty good offensive players. So like you need to have the pieces there as much as it's also system generated. Whereas like, like we said, uh, the penalty kill, you can kind of mix and match and, and find some decently skilled players to, to fit in those holes. Right. Yeah. No, the, like the, the teams that um, are good generally, where we think of them as being good teams, but have bad power plays for whatever reason, even though they might have other skilled guys or like the Montreal's, the Columbus's and the Nationals of the world. And, and sort of the common thing I see from watching those teams is they do have just like, Maybe it's a bit of it is by necessity, as you mentioned with, with Montreal, but some of it is just like this outdated tactic of just centering your entire power play around shots from the point with your defenseman. And we sort of come to know that like the way you're going to pick apart an opposing penalty kill is with a lot of that east-west action between uh, your two forwards, your two skilled guys. So like getting that type of movement is much more important than just having a big shot from the point that can tee it up all the time. So I think that's something we've, we've definitely come to know. And I think, I don't know, without looking at the, the numbers for this, I just imagine that um, the repeatability of a good power play, if you have the players, is much easier. It feels like the penalty kill would be a much more volatile thing from year, year, year to year and would be more dependent, obviously, on your on your goalie being your best penalty killer with that cliche, as opposed to, like, we know that, like, the San Jose's and the Washington's of the world, because of the guys they've had for all these years, are always near the top of the list, and that's for a reason. And I, I feel like sort of that confidence in that also leads me towards that being, um, you know, a... A, a, to answer our uh, listener's question, a bigger factor for winning just because it, it's, it is a bit more of a predictable or translatable skill. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a lot easier to build a competent power play when you're starting Yeah, just every get good players. That's, that's Ovechkin and Backstrom, right? Like, yeah. if you've got those two, you can plug and play some other skilled players and it's probably going to work out pretty well. Yeah, that's good analysis by us. Just get 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 Joe Thornton, get Alex Ovechkin, <laughs> yeah. get those guys, and then uh, and then everything else is easy. 
Get um, near generational players and your power play will be okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, if, if, uh, if Seattle wants to hire a, uh, a Berkshire Filipovich ticket to, uh, to run their <laughs> team, we can, uh, we can bring that type of savvy to the organization. Yeah. Um, so John Solo at Darn Sock asks, what teams have the best broadcasts? Uh, he says that he's a Rangers fan. Uh, dabbles in watching opponents' feeds just for the grins. Um, mentioned that he's in Dallas and can't stand the can't stand Razor and can't stand the uh, Stars broadcast, which is I almost didn't want to include that in this question because it kind of like decreases the legitimacy of of his uh, of his take because that's a bad yeah. one. That's uh, yeah. I, I gotta say, like, I'm sorry, John. I gotta call you out a little bit. That Razor's amazing. Yeah. Like, I find the Dallas Stars broadcast is one of the best in the league. Um, I've definitely watched less hockey this year than usual. Just uh, taking a, a bit of a break, and I like uh, SportLogic has a function where I can watch essentially plays after the game and, and just look at what I want to look at. So I haven't been watching as much live hockey, so I don't have as much experience as usual with the with the other broadcasts. But I find like I like getting good information on the broadcast, but I'm also very much aesthetically driven, and so like there's people who are very good play by play. Uh, announcers, would you call that announcers? Mm-hmm. Yep. Callers um, that I don't really care for. Like I think Jim Houston technically is a very good play-by-play uh, caller, but I, I don't like his inflections as much. So like I'll prefer a Bob Cole who gets eighty percent of things wrong, but I just find his, his tone that he calls the game with so pleasant. So like I I really like uh, he mentioned the Rangers. I really like, uh, I think his name is Rosen, the guy mm-hmm. who does the play-by-play yep. for, for the Rangers. I really like his voice. I don't know what it is. I just really like it. it it's like very pleasing to my ear. I agree. So that's like one of the guys that really stands out for me. Uh, I forget who his name is, but one of the guys who does Carolina's broadcast once in a while, I think he's their full-time guy now, I really like as well. Yeah, John Forsland. He does. Uh, yes, that's the one, Forsland. Yeah, yeah he, does, uh, he does some NBC games as well. It feels like they rely on him less. They obviously go with the go-to Doc Emmerich. Uh, pairing with Edzo and uh, and Pierre Maguire, you're right. I think a lot of it obviously is going to be subjective, and I think people, different people, are going to like different things just based on sort of you know what they like from from the voice more so than sort of the subjective actual call nature of it and sort of what they're saying. But I agree with you. I think Razor is amazing for Dallas, and it, it feels like there's like a functionality to his wordplay as well, and and some of the fun words he uses as opposed to Doc Emmerich, where he's just like saying stuff that doesn't even make sense just because it's different from the word pass when he's like saying like they got soccered and got yeah. off the board it's like it feels like you're trying to too hard. In. yeah it's just like just relax okay just just call the game well and he's got his, his go-to's right like off the pipe yeah yeah you're like okay calm down yeah chill out. it's like off the outside of the bottom of the net i think there's also like uh it feels like you're kind of like conditioned um when there's like a certain team calling a game, it just gives it like a kind of a big game feel. And I feel that way with, with Ray Ferraro and Gord Miller or uh, actually yes. my personal favorite is, is, I mean, Ferraro and Miller gives you that vibe of uh, growing up watching the world juniors as well, or in the past handful Absolutely. of years, like it, it kind of adds that element to it. But I, I think my personal favorite actually is uh, Ferraro and Chris Cuthbert when like they get to do the games together. Um, I think they're amazing. I remember they did like the, vegas la series for as short as it was last year uh definitely for nbc and then and, and they were a blast i was like going out of my way to watch as many of those games possible even though it was such a blowout in favor of, of vegas and it wasn't necessarily the best hockey just because i really enjoyed everything they were saying so it's amazing how sometimes like there can be such a net a, a positive effect from that and then sometimes the inverse how like there's certain teams i know like 
with the NHL TV function, um, I think it automatically uh, sends you to the home feed when you're switching over to a game. And then there's like certain teams like Columbus or, or Detroit or Pittsburgh where it's like, I dread their home games just because I'm, if I'm flipping over to it, I know there's going to be like a three second gap where I have to hear what their commentary team is saying. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I really hope it's a commercial break. Yeah, Root Sports is terrible. Uh, Altitude, Colorado yeah. Avalanche is terrible. Um, I, I think that it, there, he's not as terrible, but I don't like Jack Edwards in Boston. I know some people like him. I, I guess he's a, an acquired taste, but I just I don't like the very cheap theatrics. Mm-hmm. I, I find that he's just like very fake to me, and I know he's a real fan, and that's great, but it just seems so overproduced in the way that he talks about the game, and, and I find him <laughs> they're like anti-informative. Yeah. And, it just always reminds me, like, whenever there's a fight in a Boston game and the Bruins player could get pummeled, and they're like, oh, the Bruins player's beating the crap out of him now. And I'm like, just just say what's happening. You don't have to pretend that it's the opposite. It's okay. The Bruins beat people up all the time. They can get beat up once in a while. You don't have to, like, pretend that they've never been hurt. So they annoy me. Um, I, I really like – I mean, this is – People will say it's biased because I know he's a friend of both of ours, but I really like Mike Johnson whenever oh, yeah. he's on color. Uh, I, I think part of the reason why we both like him is like we were both friends with him is uh, we liked his commentary and then we kind of like reached out to him and got to know him that way. So uh, I, I find he's probably among the most informative color guys in the league, if not the most informative and uh, very easy to, to talk to as well. If you ask him a question or, or bring something up, he's, you know, willing to, uh, go back and forth on issues and things like that. So I, I really like him. Um, well, what, what MJ does the best, I think, and I think you'd agree with this, is that he like he adds that element of obviously having played in the NHL so he can add personal anecdotes, but he's not necessarily... Like his whole uh, his whole shtick isn't, I've played in the NHL, so I know, and I don't have to explain myself to you. Like he doesn't come in with that arrogance. He He's willing to listen and, and talk and have a conversation, but also, you know, change his mind on certain topics, I'm sure. Um, now that he's been in the game and he's been following a lot of this stuff uh, since he's retired, I'm, I'm sure his opinions on certain topics have changed from when he was a player. And, and that speaks to sort of that nature of being able to evolve and adapt as new information presents itself. And, and, and that's why I feel like he he can explain his stuff as opposed to just, you know, having that arrogance of, of having played so he knows and, and you don't because you didn't. Yeah, he, he comes by everything honestly, right? right. There, there's no... Um conceit in the way that he talks about things and i love that i really appreciate that with him i think you know you learn more from people like that than the people who just make the argument from authority and you know you never played the game at the nhl levels you don't know what you're talking about and there's in some instances that can be true Mm. but i think that when you start that way people you know harden their hearts to put it uh, dramatically yeah well, speaking of dramatically, hey, um, yeah, your point about Jack Edwards, I do think he's a bit of an acquired taste. Like, I, I, he's definitely grown on me in the past handful of years because I just, like, I've embraced the fact that he's just the biggest homer ever and you, you're never going to get, like, if you watch an SM broadcast and you watch him call the game, you're never going to get this um, impartial, objective opinion. Like, it's clearly... No, you can't expect And so if you acknowledge that and you know what you're getting into, I find it a much more palatable and it can be enjoyable. And his enthusiasm for the Bruins and for the game definitely comes across. And so I, I, I kind of enjoy that sometimes as well. Like it, it is a bit more upbeat, but you're right. I mean, when they beat Carolina the other day and he's like talking about like stripping the fat off of a whale and, and you know, like, oh <laughs> you need to relax a little bit right now. Like this is a hockey yeah. game. Like just chill. One There's kids will, watching. Yeah. One thing I will give Jack Edwards and the Nesson broadcast is 
as much as they're Bruins homers, they will like make a big deal if another team scores. Mm. Whereas with Root Sports, there have been goals against the Penguins where I was watching and I didn't even know that the puck went in because they didn't say anything. Yeah. They just like kept going on on a tangent that they were talking about, like not even like just monotone. And then like a minute later when the faceoff's going on, they're like, and I guess uh, the Penguins have allowed one. It's like, what? Are you guys watching the game? Like, what's going on? Did that go in? Is there a review? Like, well, they're the, crazy. They're the wildest with like when there's like questionable hits or when oh, there's yes. like a, a penalty call in question and like just how like heavily they're campaigning for the Penguins to always get a five minute power play for a major on like a, a, a just regular body check against Evgeny Malkin. And yeah, they're, they're infuriating. Uh, the Columbus guys really bug me for some reason. I think Carolina, as you mentioned, is really good from the local ones. I think Vegas is really good. Nashville is really good. Chris Mason has some of that. Uh, Mike Johnson, like you were saying about being willing to adapt and, and actually speak on stuff and, and, and then, then Dallas. So yeah, there's, there's a, a good mix there. I, I do recommend people, especially if you're watching a ton of games and you're bouncing around and you're not just watching your favorite team to, dapple in some of these other broadcasts because they all have a different flair for it and, and i feel like some of them certainly are are trying to incorporate different elements into it as well so um yeah there's a lot of good stuff out there and obviously the the national ones we mentioned so anyways let's take a quick break here we hear from a sponsor and then we're going to pick up with some of these other questions on the other end of things sounds good sponsoring today's episode of the hockey pdo cast is SeatGeek. SeatGeek knows that getting tickets online can be far too complicated with hundreds of websites and varying levels of reliability. It's hard to know who to trust out there. But that's why SeatGeek's the way to go because they're going to take all that guessing out of the equation for you and do all the work for you, making your life easier, saving you time, money, and effort. SeatGeek's going to pull millions of tickets into one place so you can easily find the seats you want for a price you're willing to pay. There's nothing quite like being there in person and SeatGeek's going to get you closer to the action for a great value. They're designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever before by searching multiple ticket sites and grading every ticket based on value. SeatGeek helps you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence, knowing that what you pay for is what you're going to get. All of that is why you need to make SeatGeek your go-to ticket source for everything from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. And if that wasn't enough, as my listener, you're going to get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase, and I highly recommend that if you've been holding out until now, you get into it. You uh, you dip you dip your toes in the water. You dabble a little bit. You go out to a, to a game. Whether it's listen, this is the best time of the sporting year, I think. Whether it's you know baseball starting or NHL and NBA playoffs coming up around the corner. You've got March Madness. There's so much good stuff happening that um, I'm sure there's something out there that's going to appeal to you. That's going to be interesting, and I highly recommend you go on SeatGeek to check it out because they are a one stop shop. They're going to really do all of it for you. And I've found constantly whenever I've used it to go to any of these events that they really do save you that time, money, and effort, and you can't ask for more. So all you have to do is download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code PDO. That's promo code PDO for $10 off your first purchase on SeatGeek. Now let's get back to the show. So I have a question here from uh, from Johnny Joestar, who's citing a recent article that friend of the podcast and good friend of ours, Dom Loose Chicken, um wrote about heavy hockey and he asks uh which contenders play quote-unquote heavy hockey and do teams that don't play this style have a chance of winning the cup this season did you have a chance to uh to check that out and sort of give give a little bit of thought to uh to the idea of that or at least what it represents in your mind yeah i did and what i wanted to do was like cross-reference in like 
entirety uh, the list that he came up with for heavy hockey versus uh, some of the stats that I have access to, and I didn't have time to do all of that. Mm -hmm. But what I did find interesting is that his estimation came exactly in line on number one with uh, the actual data that I was looking at. Mm -hmm. So the Vegas Golden Knights are now confirmed in both look and feel to be the heaviest hockey team in the league. Right. Well, I think the definition of this is important, right? And sort of Mm -hmm. the distinction, because I think Vegas is a great example of, uh, you know, like functionality of it, right? Like, especially last year, when you watch them play, um, it's that forecheck of theirs that generates a ton of turnover, a ton of pressure. It prevents the opposing defenseman from clearing the puck cleanly and sort of making them think twice about what they're going to do with it and maybe making decisions faster than they would otherwise. And I think they're really successful because of it in the neutral zone. And there's that element to it. And I think there's this misconception where people like you and I would be against that and and it couldn't be further from the truth. I think where we have an issue with it is when you're sacrificing the functionality just for the sake of having guys who throw body checks because they're constantly changing, chasing the game and chasing the play and never have it on their stick. And so if you can have players um that can play that type of style without giving anything up on the skill department or or not necessarily having to pick one or the other obviously you'd prefer that the problem is is that um and maybe this will change in the coming years as the game has evolved and gotten faster and, and people's thought processes have changed but i know in the past those guys can become overrated and overpriced and so you kind of either have to take them really high in the draft or you have to spend a lot of the on them in free agency or via trade and then at that point, you're sacrificing skill, and that's where I have an issue with it. Yeah, I think that's where we're in total agreement there. And I think we, we talked about this before when we were looking at uh, Carolina's acquisition of Michael Furland, right? And we were talking about uh, the owner talking, saying that they wanted yeah, to get bigger and get tougher yeah. in the offseason. We were like, oh, no. And they get Michael Furland? Oh, okay, well, that's good. That's that's actionable skill, you know, like actionable uh, heavy hockey. So, yeah, the Vegas Golden Knights are a really smart team in, in the way that they uh, not only – play but in the way that they acquire talent um they tend to overpay a little bit but i think it's because they can afford to with all the the picks they've had in the first three drafts but i i think most people aren't going to look at a guy like mark stone and say this guy plays heavy hockey but he happens to be one of the best four checkers in the league like he's just incredible and two of the stats that i look at when I'm trying to like quantify heavy hockey or like uh, forechecking ability are number one, how often are teams removing possession from opponents in their own defensive zone? So, you know, when, it, when the defending team has the puck and they're getting ready to break it out, how often are you engaging with them, poking the puck off their stick, uh, putting the body on them, moving the puck away from them? Uh, how often are you getting in lanes, intercepting passes? And how often are you actually recovering those pucks that you create? Uh, those loose pucks that you create. So Vegas leads the league in loose puck recoveries in the offensive zone. Uh, There's a reason for that. One team that really jumped up from uh, Dom's breakdown to the data that I had was Carolina. They were Mm -hmm. in the, I think, lower half or like almost dead even middle uh, of uh, Dom's breakdown. So they're not a big team. Uh, They're not a weighty team, but they're a very effective, smart team in the way that they forecheck. And they're second in the league in loose puck recoveries. And some of the other teams are teams that you you know have a good forecheck, right? St. Louis, San Jose, Winnipeg, Tampa Bay, Boston. Those teams are teams that make more sense, but Carolina is a team that kind of flies under the radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, and, and their forecheck has been a big reason for why they sort of generate that kind of 
similar to Vegas last year, I think kind of like that, that a bit of that frantic helter skelter pace that works in their favor and, and works with, with the talent they have. Yeah, um, and like you, uh, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but uh, like Los Angeles, right, used to have the most like devastating forecheck in the league when they were winning Cubs. Right. But now, like, as the league has gotten faster, they're a big, heavy team, but they're just too slow. They actually have the worst forecheck in the league this year in terms of effectiveness. They recover the fewest pucks in the league. So that's that's super interesting to me to see a team that, you know, at once was at the pinnacle of this under the Daryl Sutter years and uh, like the max talent of their roster. And now they're just wasting away. And there's a reason why, you know, when you're a team that has trouble generating high danger scoring chances at the best of times, but you kind of win on volume. Mm-hmm. And your bread and butter forecheck kind of falls by the wayside because you're now too slow to catch up to teams. You're not going to be very good, and that's exactly what's happened to LA. Well, and and part of that is the game getting faster, and then a, yep. a bigger part of that is those guys aging out, right? And yes, exactly. I, I remember the time where people were like pointing to LA as an example of how like you do need big players in in the playoffs to succeed. And it's like, well, yeah, if those guys are going to be Anze Kopitar and Jeff Carter in their prime. Um, sure. Yeah. I'll, I will take their size to go along with all the skill they have, but, uh, it, 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 and an interesting component of this as well, from a roster building perspective, and it doesn't necessarily matter like in the present now in terms of this question of winning the cup this year, but I think we'd be in, in agreement that, um, if you're projecting forward, um, you know, especially as you get into the late twenties and then early thirties of different player types, I imagine there's like a lot more fear about, um, heavier, more physical players, kind of like a Wayne Simmons now, for example, he's going to be an interesting topic this summer and his impending free agency and sort of how he's looked this year is like you don't want to invest necessarily long-term in that type of player style because it seems like it's going to age worse. And once you you have less speed to lose while still being effective, so if you lose even like a quarter of a step, all of a sudden you just become a massive liability as opposed to maybe a, a shiftier uh, more skilled player, you have a bit more wiggle room there to decline physically while still maintaining your effectiveness in different ways of the game. Yeah, I think anybody who takes a lot of punishment and you know tries to dole it out and has not the best foot speed, you, you're always a little bit worried about how they age. Uh, Wayne Simmons makes me sad because I wonder how much of it is just that hip injury that he suffered that you know he played through all that one year and then had surgery to repair and never really felt right last year. And this year, he, he just, he's struggling big time. Uh, he's still a really good power play net front guy. Mm-hmm. But right now, that's all he really is. And, you know, can he recover next year? He's only 30, so maybe. You know, like, that is when decline starts, but it's been such a steep decline for him over the last couple of years that, that that's very worrying. Like, I feel bad for him. This is literally the worst possible time for him to be an unrestricted free agent but maybe he can you know make some noise in the playoffs for nashville and score some power play goals and and get his name back out there but uh yeah uh, you you always have to worry about guys especially with the way the league is trending i think it's really hard to project out you know five years or so what's going to be going on in the league whether it'll be you know shifting to more offense or more uh, defensive style mm-hmm. But the one thing that you can probably predict is the league will get faster. Yep. And it seems like that's been, you know, ever since the first uh, full year lockout in 2005, it seems like it's continued to get quicker and quicker and quicker. And even as obstruction has kind of squirreled its way back into the game, it hasn't really slowed it down. You're right. And obviously there's a lot of uh, an advantage out there, a competitive advantage for teams that can forecast what the league will look like five years from now and get ahead of it 
um, as opposed to sort of playing from behind and, and constantly having to uh, to make changes accordingly when it's too late. Um, Mose Murray here asks, who are some under-the-radar slash intriguing GM candidates in Edmonton and head coach candidates in Ottawa? Yeah, I'm I'm terrible at the head coach one because I think in order to right, know... know what a good coach actually is. Yeah, and it's tough. And it's really tough to judge... AHL success because how much is a team investing in their American Hockey League roster? Uh, how much are they focused on winning versus development? How much of development can be put on coaches? And then do you look at the junior ranks? I mean, I feel like you just have to look at what this is like the last remaining section where I look at what hockey people are saying and I'm like, it's got to be this guy. So, like, I, I tend to trust the people who I already know are smart. And it seems like Dallas Eakins is pretty close to ready now or has been ready for a couple of years now. He was put in a really crap situation in Edmonton. Uh, I'd be interested to see what he can do in the NHL for sure. Um, GM candidates. I feel like the, the big ones are like uh, Mike Fuda is always in, up there. Um, there's some analytics heavy guys that I'd be interested in. The guy that I always looked at for years, it was my go-to answer for this question was Julian Brisebois, but now he's the GM. So mm. he's no longer on the list. I Mike Food is an interesting name you bring up because I think he gets a lot of um a lot of praise and, and deservedly so for more of the work he's done in terms of like the draft and sort of identifying talent there. And and while I think that is a very useful skill, there's so much that goes into the GM position beyond that that Totally. I think sometimes um, like just hire a really good uh, director for your draft. Or uh, I understand maybe if the if the guy becomes so good, sometimes he sort of exceeds that position, and all of a sudden you can't get him for that, and you have to hire him for it to be an assistant GM or, or or actual GM. But I do think like there's so many different components to to juggling and 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 um, and handling that, like we've seen this with Jim Benning in, in Vancouver, where just if all you're good at is the draft and all you're good at is identifying talent at the top of the draft. Like that's a useful skill, but if it's going to lag in a lot of your other uh, business decisions, that can be a really slippery slope. So I think there's different things that I'd favor beyond just that. So not to say my food wouldn't, wouldn't make for a good jam. I'm, I'm just kind of bringing that up as, as a topic of discussion. I've, I've talked about um, you know, the combination of Mike Gillis and Lawrence Gilmer on the podcast before and how they'd be interesting for, for both Edmonton or both Seattle. Like, Obviously, I, I think you just want a GM that is going to be willing to adapt and evolve as the game change, as the league changes, and also be willing to uh, try out stuff and not necessarily just do things just because the NHL has always done them a certain way. And sometimes that can rub people the wrong way. But I think if I want someone, uh, you know, building my team and running my organization, I'm going to want someone who's going to be willing to experiment and try things, even if they might be different from what other teams out there are doing. Yeah, I think I really like that point that you made about not going scout heavy because as much as you know, I brought up Fuda mostly because that's the name that's always yes, yeah, out there as the top of the list candidate, right? But I, I agree with you that if your main focus is scouting, you probably shouldn't be a general manager. And that's it, it sucks for people who are really great at scouting. There's kind of like a max threshold that you can reach before it gets to like the Peter principle where you're promoted beyond your skill set. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that people who are great at the draft can't also be great managers, but I think when you're looking at a general manager, as much as you know, you and I have a bias towards wanting people who will do things differently and uh, be uh, aggressive with new ideas, 
but at the same time, I think your primary function is management, right? It's just people managing, getting the right people for the jobs, being confident enough to hire somebody that you think is smarter than you. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest asset that you can have as a manager is being able to to build that team that works, right? So I, I think a lot of the times that we, we look at the general manager as you know, the, the key to everything when really they're just the person that's putting everything together. They're not necessarily the primary decision maker on any one thing. I think you, the ideal general manager is somebody who listens to the smart people that they have acquired. And it's much harder to identify that person outside of knowing the actual managers personally. Right. So like, that's why the interview process matters so much, but you know, putting people's names out there i think for the most part the people that we're going to come up with are either too earlier in the, too early in their career to ne- necessarily be general managers or more suited to being an advisor to the general manager right. or a head of a specific department because it, it's just really tough to identify that like if i'm looking at uh, a general manager do i want to get a, a lawrence gilman or a uh Who's the guy in Toronto? Is it like uh, Prendergast or something like that? The the capologist? Mm, uh, Prenum. I know. the le- Prenum, yeah, Brandon Prenum. Like, do you want that guy as your general manager? Because they're like the numbers people, and that would be great. Right. But are they the best manager? Yes. And it's always – you never know what you're going to get in the other skill sets when you hire somebody who's just amazingly qualified in the one area. And sometimes they'll work out and sometimes they won't. I, I feel like – if I'm looking at getting a new general manager for a team and I'm coming in fresh, I'd probably be looking at lawyers more than anything. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and the tricky component of this as well is like a lot of the names that keep coming up every summer, every time we do this, are sort of the, sim- the same names. And it's guys who are in lower positions in successful organizations, right? And while that makes sense because you'd see like, you think like, okay, well, first off, this person probably played some role in helping make this organization successful in the first place. But even if they didn't necessarily play a direct role, at least they were sort of close enough to the action to take away a couple of tricks of the trade and sort of incorporate that in their new landing spot to make that kind of replicate it and copy it and, and make that new team of theirs successful. But it, it can be sometimes tricky because you never know um, if just because two people were working together as a GM and an assistant GM or what, what have you, that they were necessarily aligned or that, that they would do the same job if they had the same job. Right. And we see that time and time again, where whether it's an assistant coach gets hired and they're way different philosophically, like a Mike Sullivan was with, with John Jordarella. And when we see that in Pittsburgh or whether it's like Brian McClellan as an assistant GM for uh, George McPhee, and then him getting hired to take over that job after McPhee gets fired and, and instantly making a bunch of different moves that help Washington get over the top. Like you never know how it's going to go that way. So you're right. Obviously you just have to do your due diligence and do the interview process and sort of be valuing the right things. But I don't necessarily think there's one right answer um, for the question for the head coach component of this though. There's obviously a couple big names out there and, and Dallas Eakins, as you mentioned, and based on the success he's had um, with San Diego and the fact that, the Edmonton saga of things has uh, enough times passed that I feel like he will get a second chance. I, I think like, we'll see how the season plays out, but I imagine if they miss the playoffs or if they make it again and lose in five games in round one, um, considering Paul Fenton didn't hire Bruce Boudreau. I talked to all those Emily last time on the show, but I feel like that's <laughs> going to be a name to watch. And 
any postseason questions aside, like if you're a team not sure about who your head coach is going to be next year, I feel like you sort of have to wait to see what happens there just because if you do have even a slight percent chance of getting Bruce Boudreau to coach your team, that is uh, that would be a home run and you sort of have to make that happen. And then obviously John uh, Joel Quenville is an interesting name and I'm not sure what his appetite is for, for coaching at this point or he seems to be kind of enjoying his life, but I imagine he will get the itch for it at, at some point. And I imagine also just given his track record and sort of his experience, he'll want to take over a team that can instantly be uh, a contender and not be in it for like a three, four, five year long haul process. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, not to derail the coaching discussion, but just like uh, I want your opinion because mm-hmm. uh, I'm kind of split on it. What do you think of like Ron Hextall in Philadelphia, the job that he did? Because I I feel like he's a guy who came from a successful at the time organization that came into a new organization that I think did some did things relatively differently than Dean Lombardi, who he uh, you know learned from, I guess, or learned on the job from, right. and was fired mid-season right. when they probably should have just fired the coach first. But uh, what, what's your call on uh, what he did in Philly? Well, I think obviously, I, I think he did. There's no argument that it wasn't a massive net positive. Like you can quibble with certain little things here and there. And, and I think towards the end, he um, sort of misread the situation a little bit and maybe was a bit too conservative. And there were some obvious fixes that he could have made this summer that he just chose not to for whatever reason. And that ultimately did him in and cost him his job. But I think like if you look at the situation he inherited and just how dire things were financially and how he was creative about getting out of that hole and obviously taking advantage of other GMs and, and um, creating opportunities to get out from under bad contracts while also bringing back in assets and sort of how he rebuilt that team from a draft perspective and how they accumulated assets. I think all of those point to him being a really smart mind that I would have no qualms about hiring. Um, I'd be very curious to have a frank conversation with him about how things went in Philly down the end uh, towards the end there and sort of what the rationale for not making certain moves were and sort of him standing pat and, and how you also never know sort of what the interaction is with ownership and how much that plays into it in some of these jobs. So you take all that into account, but I think he, he was a massive net positive and he did a lot of great things in Philly. And I think he deserves to be a name that is talked about with all these other top guys uh, for any job that comes up this summer. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think, uh, I was pretty impressed overall with Hextall, and I, I was really surprised when they let him go. I guess the one thing is, was he too loyal to a coach? Mm. Which the answer is probably yes. Right. I, I think you look at you know what Travis Sanheim has done since the coaching change, and you know getting bigger minutes and more trust, and you're like, how was this guy not given more leash before this? It makes no sense. So there's obviously some criticism that goes that way, but. Yeah, in terms of like roster uh, changing, uh, restocking the cabinet, the cupboard, I mean, right. uh, for prospects, like I thought Hextall did a, a pretty phenomenal job. And again, how much of that is Hextall and how much of that is some of the other employees in the Flyers management and organization? But I, I thought that uh, he probably deserved more time there. I, who knows what's going to happen with uh, with how the, the Flyers are going to be managed now. Maybe they'll be better off, but... I thought they were on the right track. I thought that you looked at some of the decisions that they made, uh, you know, shifting Claude Giroux to the wing, where initially you're like, oh, that's a crazy decision. And then it, you know, brought out arguably the best season of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Flyers were 
looking dead in the water when Hextall came in and then almost opened up another window for themselves. And they're kind of en route to maybe having that window in the next couple of years. But yeah, I guess they just never quite got there. So I guess if you're, if your judgment for success is like have to win or not, or they're a failure, then I guess he was a failure, but I thought net positive and quite positive. Well, and we talk about the different skill sets needed for the job. And I imagine there is also a distinction between, um, you know, how those skill sets correlate with a GM who might be good for uh, coming into a certain situation where he sort of has to clean house and Mm -hmm. get the franchise in the upswing. And then there's certain guys who might be more of sort of a closer that would come in and make some, some big difficult decisions that would get you over the top. And, I think Hextall would be a very fascinating name for a team like Edmonton to consider just because they do need to make some some shrewd moves this summer to um, get out, get some more financial flexibility and uh, accumulate assets on the margins that would help out the core they already have in place. So I, he'd be a fascinating guy from that perspective to come in and sort of clean up some of that stuff. And I imagine he is one of the names that they're considering. But like that's a situation where there's obviously um, the reward is so massive, assuming you can come in and are actually going to get full ownership of the situation and not have people meddling above you. Um, because once you have Connor McDavid and Leon Seidel, you can sort of get rid of some of these contracts, hopefully get get, get Ottawa to take Lucic's deal this year after you pay his signing bonus. Hopefully he waves and you get him out of town and you shed some of that money and you do a little, a few other creative things. And then all of a sudden you have this team back in the playoffs and you have the best player in the world, and all of a sudden, a lot of good things can happen. So it seemed like that's like a situation, assuming you would have um, autonomy, that would be a very intriguing to a lot of names. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I feel like that the GM for certain situations is something that's always interested me. Like, I, I, I often wonder, like, was Ken Holland a great GM for maintaining the Detroit Red Wings at uh, as a great team? But as soon as they were no longer great, he became... A terrible GM because he just doesn't know what to do in order to, you know, bottom out and come back up. He doesn't know how to build because he came in when they were already great, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he was good at making the moves to to keep them great while those players were in their primes. But as soon as things started to tail off, it, Detroit's been managed into a bit of a shit show, right? Yeah. To, like one of the worst cap situations in the league. And that's, you know, starting to, in the next couple of years, ease off a little bit as some of those contracts end. But there's still some contracts with a lot of term left on Detroit that are, you're like, this guy's paid how much? Yeah. Like, I think there's still a top five team in salary this year, and they're awful, despite Dylan Larkin being amazing. No, yeah, they're atrocious. But I do think, like, and they've been very easy to make fun of the past couple of years, but um, assuming they handle things the right way, like, I think, like, two years from now, a lot of that money does come off the books, and I think they have done a pretty good job the past, I think, like, two trade deadlines or, or the past two years as a whole. Of, and great drafts too of drafting and of accumulating a bunch of draft picks and actually trading guys and getting assets back at the deadline for expirings and veterans and obviously getting three picks for Thomas Tatar and the trade they made last year with Vegas helps a lot but sort of stuff like that I think I do think they're trending in the right direction I, I think there's going to be a lot of losing ahead for the next couple of years but at least like there's a blueprint there in place and whether that's Ken Holland or whether Steve Eiserman comes in to help finish that off or, or who have you um, at least there's reasons for hope moving forward yeah, I agree. And uh, I guess that's another thing is like from the outside, it's a lot easier to say, well, this team needs to tear it down than being 
the general manager of a team that's won multiple Stanley Cups and, you know, you've still got Zetterberg and Datsuk and, you know, Jan Franzen before the last concussion that really took him out. And to sit there and actually make that decision to rip it to shreds is a lot tougher, right? It's mm-hmm. just like in Vancouver where, you know, from the outside, we were all saying like, hey, like trade the Sedins, like get your assets for them now. They're still good players. We get the emotional impact, but you, you've got to get something to rebuild. And maybe they should have, but at the same time, there's something emotional, uh, emotionally satisfying about the Sedins retiring as Canucks, right? right? And then never having played for another team. You know, I think they still live in Vancouver, don't they? Yeah, and I imagine and, they will stay here just how uh, firmly entrenched they are in the community. Yeah, so like that kind of stuff. And I think that they also are, you know, if they're going to stay in Vancouver, they're probably going to be involved in the organization at some mm-hmm. point because they're they're smart guys, uh, whether it's in scouting or what have you. Uh, I think there's there's value to that. There's value to maintaining those relationships. So I think sometimes we get a little bit too trigger happy and like tear it down tank and like, it's not necessarily that easy when you're the one in charge. For sure. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's the difficulty of the job. There are, you're, you're, you've got like, you're dealing with so many different people and also so many different areas of, of team building that uh, I guess you never really know how a guy's going to do or how a person's going to do in that job until they are eventually in it. So it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating discussion. I'm sure it's something we'll be able to revisit uh, once we get into the summer and some of these openings crystallize a bit more. Let's, uh, let's answer a couple more questions here before we get out of here. Uh, Andrew Moat asks, he needs a pulse check on where the Blues are at. Says they started a week, then they went white hot, now they've dropped back a year. Can you walk us through each stage? Yeah, this is going to be a super unsatisfying answer, but it's pretty much mostly goaltending and shooting luck. Um, I I guess you can't really say Have you noticed any structural changes, uh, especially defensively with, Rube versus Yo, because it does feel like from watching it that I don't know if they've necessarily changed a lot, but it feels like they are making life a bit easier on their goalies. Obviously, like I think J- J- uh, Bennington had to make like 41 saves or something the other day against Pittsburgh and look remarkable, but for the most part, it does feel like uh, they were quite a bit of a mess with Jake Allen in front of him at the start of the year. And the, in the middle portion there, especially, it felt like they had a lot of performances where they were really doing a good job of limiting chances and, and, and shots against. I mean, there's always some stuff that's going to be missed in the data, right? Where, like, not all chances are created equally, mm-hmm. even if they're all scoring chances. But in terms of, like, the actual data, uh, the St. Louis Blues have been a really good defensive team the whole year, a uh, really good offensive team the whole year. Uh, that hot streak that they were on, they were, like, especially red hot, in, like, everywhere. Yeah. But they've been, you know, at the very least, positive differentials across the board the whole season long. They've been uh, playing like a high-end playoff team for the, for most of the season. And for a while, they just couldn't score and they couldn't get a save. And then they could do both at the same time. So it just seems like one of those seasons that's been super weird in that, you know, things fluctuate over time. But usually sometimes when you can score, your, your goaltenders are dipping a little bit. And when you can't score, your goaltender saves a day and you can ride to a, a great season. Whereas they've had everything either bottom out or top out at the same time consistently all year long, and it's been this wild ride, uh, like crazy roller coaster. Well, I think they're a really good team. I would be very worried uh, about if I was Winnipeg or Nashville about facing the St. Louis Blues in the first round. I think, on balance, they've played better at even strength than both those teams. Yep, 
And we're going to get into Winnipeg and Nashville in the next question. So I'll save the conversation on them for a little bit here while we finish up on the Blues. But you're right. I mean, that would obviously, that's going to be a fascinating first round matchup because they are, it looks like going to draw one of those teams. And the only issue for them, I guess, is that just because of that hole they dug themselves, um, they're not going to have home ice advantage in that series, which is a bit of an issue, but not necessarily, uh, you know, a lethal blow by any means. But there was that period of time there in the middle stretch when they were white hot. There was like a 20 to 25 game window where they were like a 56 or 57 percent shot share team. And that included like high danger stuff. And, and they were just yeah. obscene. And some of that might have been schedule, but it, it was clear that like they were, you know, absolutely peaking there. And while they were r- rattling off that tear, which did coincide with Jordan Bennington being out of his mind and having like a 935 save percentage um, where they were like, oh, my God, like this team's never going to lose again. And they went on that winning streak and they've come back down to earth a little bit. Obviously not having Vladimir Tarasenko in the lineup hurts a lot, especially since like his season matches up very well with the blue season as a whole, which is unsurprising considering he's their go-to scorer. But like at the start of the year when they were struggling and people were wondering what was wrong, he wasn't scoring and he was incredibly unlucky and his name actually started servicing in trade rumors. And then all of a sudden, he went on that tear where he was pretty much scoring a goal a game during that winning streak. And he was looking like the Vladimir Tarasenko we expected because some of those pucks were starting to go in for him. And then now he's out and they've come back down to earth a little bit. So I, I don't think there's any uh, doubting that, you know, that's not a coincidence, but I, I like this team a lot moving forward. And I also like um, the fact that part of the reason we liked them was obviously the summer they brought in a bunch of guys who uh, would make their team better, even if they were sort of, aging guys who might have a bit too much term on their deals like a Tyler Bozak or a David Perron but I, I I like I like their young players a lot I like that Robert Thomas now is finally getting a chance he's playing on the top line with Ryan O'Reilly in in um, Tarasenko's stead I love Vince Dunn I think Vince Dunn's one of my favorite young players and now he's playing on the top pairing with Alex Petrangelo and I, and I, I really am fascinated to see um, how he develops moving forward because there obviously is a massive gap from going from a, a third pair sort of sheltered guy who's crushing it in easy minutes to actually doing the heavy lifting, but he seems like he's going to be able to handle it. So they have a lot of interesting young parts there moving forward for as well beyond this year. And they're starting to contribute now. And I think they're going to be a really, really tough out in the postseason. And, and assuming Jordan Bennington can hold up and not necessarily be a, a 930 save percentage, but even be at least average or above average. That's such a massive difference from what they were getting at the start of the year from Chad Johnson and Jake Allen that, um, all of that has kind of come together to make them a really fascinating sleeper team this postseason. Yeah. Do you have like, um, like the EA sports disease where you like see a name and if it's kind of boring, you're like, well, that player can't be good until you like get to know them a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. Cause I definitely have like with Vince Dunn, I'm like, who's Vince Dunn? Who cares about this guy? And then you actually, you know, have to look into him a little bit and you're like, Oh, he's really good. Mm-hmm. Whereas a guy like Colton Pareko, my brain will be like, Oh, he must be interesting. Cause his name is Colton Pareko. Yeah. You know, it's just a, a, a weird thing. But, yeah, I think the Blues are, are really interesting. I, I think, like you said, they brought in a lot of guys that are high-impact players in the right spot, even if, you know, a few years down the line it might be uh, a little bit tough with uh, a guy like Tyler Bozak. But uh, Ryan O'Reilly, I think, also had a really tough start to the year by the percentages mm-hmm. but was playing really well. And then I, I think for the last uh, – two or three months he's like first or second in terms of like uh scoring chances created at even strength so that that's a guy that like 
you always knew he was going to rebound. You were just waiting for it. But uh, it, it's happened now, and he, he's been fantastic. Tarasenko being out obviously hurts. Um, well, we you know, expect David him to be Perron's, back, right? Yeah, but David Perron is a, a really good player, but probably not ideal in your first line, right? No. And I think also, like, I like Alex Steen still. Like, he's still a good player, but he's definitely taken the walk off the cliff compared to his peak years, right? So that's the kind of thing where you – when you're whenever you're projecting St. Louis, like they're not, they have some young players, but they also have like some pretty old core players. So it's it's one of those things where you really hope they can make some noise this year because, as much as the young players are promising, they've got to be really promising to make up for uh, some of the decline around the rest of the lineup. Well, and this is we're going to segue into this next question now, but it does feel like this opening has presented itself because, and I had a bunch of people ask this, um, especially about Nashville, about how worried they should be, and uh, the Jets came up as well. And I, I think both of those teams, for a variety of reasons, um, are much more susceptible now than we probably thought they'd be, and, and definitely than they were last year. And it, it feels like all year we've been kind of waiting going like, okay, regardless of what happens in round two, we're going to get that Winnipeg-Nashville rematch again. And last year's series was so awesome, and I can't wait to see what's going to happen again. And we still might very well get that. But both teams have a lot more question marks than I envision them having coming into the season. Yeah, it's I, – I mean, yeah, I really thought that both teams were relatively immune to a season like this. And – I guess in terms of regular season performance, they have been because they're both going to easily make the playoffs in a walk. Right. But I, I expected these two to be like two of the top five teams in the league, and maybe they w- will be in the standings by the end of the year. But in terms of the, their actual play, it hasn't been. And I, I know Nashville likes to push everything onto the power play, which has been terrible. But the power play aside, like they haven't exactly been inspiring at even strength either. Nope. Uh, Victor Arvidsson has, he's been unbelievable. And part of the issue in Nashville is definitely injuries, right? Like they missed uh, Forsberg and Arvidsson for a while. PK Subban was out. Uh, I think they had uh, Yossi out for a couple games, not very long though. So like Turris has been terrible again, which is, I think the big worry for them is, yep. They expect to be a lot stronger down the middle this year, and that just hasn't happened for them. Um, I, I think the only pleasant surprise for them has been Colton Sissons, and I still don't think he's that great. I think he's a fourth-line, third-line tweener kind of guy. Uh, he's kind of playing in like a second-line role right now, and I, I know he's scoring at the moment, but I, I don't believe that very much. Right. You know, like, I think they've got some problems there, and, and Winnipeg – Again, they, they've had injuries lately, but they haven't played their best all season long. I don't know if it's just both those teams are a little bit complacent and expect to make the playoffs or what, and they'll flip the switch in the playoffs, but I just haven't seen it from them. Um, Patrick Laine has been pretty terrible outside of goal scoring this year. When he's not scoring, it's it's rough. Have you uh, seen uh, Have you seen the numbers for, for Shifley and Wheeler, who, who have not been – very good at five on five all year, especially with the no. Shasher. But I mean, with line eight, I think they're like forty three or forty four percent this season since they've got. Yeah, it's not good. I mean, I, I think Shifley has actually been about what I expected. He's probably been the least disappointing forward. Mm-hmm. Um, Blake Wheeler's put up lots of points. He's fallen uh, off. 
his yeah his underlying numbers scare me. Yeah. If I'm the Jets, they scare me a lot, considering that huge contract he just got. Mm-hmm. Because uh, everywhere you look at it outside of the power play, where he's still like a maniac, amazing scoring chance creator. Yeah. Uh, he he's it's taken a big hit compared to last year. And you know, Shifley and Wheeler last year also were not a positive shot share uh, line uh, with Kyle Connor either. They just outskilled teams, right? Uh, they were fantastic at defend, defending the front of the net. Uh, they're still the, one of the best teams, if not the best team in the league, in terms of controlling passes to the slot for and against. They have an amazing slot pass differential, but uh, they aren't protecting the net front as well as last year, which has led to Hellebuck having more struggles, and he mm-hmm. hasn't been as good as last year. So it's like all the things that compounded together last year to make them almost unbeatable have fallen off the, lately. And like we saw last year with uh, with Washington, right? We're like in the regular season, it kind of felt like the only thing that they were good at was playmaking at even strength. And they were getting out-chanced, out-shot, out-attempted. And then in the playoffs, things kind of turned around and their goalie who was struggling all of a sudden was okay <laughs> and took over for Grubauer after the first two games. And then they went on this incredible run and yep. they figured it out. So maybe that'll happen for the Jets, but... I, I definitely am not in the place where I was with Nashville or Winnipeg last year or with Nashville two years ago where I'd be willing to put down a good chunk of change that they would win their first-round matchup, which is kind of crazy considering how talented both those rosters are. And even, you know, Nashville, most of their talent is shifted towards the back end, and they just have that top line up front. You know, with Granlin in the lineup now, I feel like their second line should be a lot better, and maybe it's just taking some time to to figure it out, but... You know, things haven't clicked the way you expect. And Pecorine has been good. He's been above average, but he hasn't been amazing like last year. And that hurts a lot. Yeah. With Winnipeg, I mean, they have uh, such exceptional talent that, like, I feel like the baseline performance for them from a shot share perspective at 5 on 5, like, it, they don't need to be, um, you know, super, super elite or dominant yeah. because they convert, they, I expect them to convert a higher percentage of changes, especially, uh, like Shifley's line and, and, and line A. So they just need, but it's been so underwhelming for so long now that there are red flags. Now we should say that, you know, we're talking about the injuries for Nashville and that is a fair, uh, thing to point out with Winnipeg. I mean, they're missing Bufflin and Morrissey yeah, right now. Which is and, huge. Yes, huge. obviously. And assuming they can come back and not only come back, but be their regular, selves that's obviously going to move the needle quite a bit for them and i still while you're right especially a series against st louis i would definitely give a lot of thought to how that would play out i think even a potential series against a dallas or a minnesota or or maybe arizona to a lesser extent but those teams do enough things well defensively that i'd worry a little bit about whether winnipeg would have the volume to kind of break past that but at the same time i'd also they do have such immense talent that I can envision a world where they do put it together and go on a spirited run. So I'd feel silly betting against it. It's just, there are sort of some lingering uh, concerns in the back of my mind with Nashville. It's, I mean, now that they're finally healthy or healthier, um, we'll see. Obviously their top guys have played really well. The fact that they just like, they, admirably went in all in they pushed their chips in in the trade for tourists and signed him they went out and signed nick bonino in 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 free agency like they've done all this stuff in the past few years i feel like they just made some bad bets on certain guys and that might ultimately come back to bite them in the butt and 
I didn't think I'd be saying this, but I do think the three best teams in the West are in the Pacific Division right now, which is a yeah. massive departure from where we thought we'd be at the start of the year. And that speaks to how great those teams have been. And it also speaks to how these teams have taken a bit of a step back. Yeah, it's like crazy to me that Vegas is third in their division because I think they're like arguably a top two team in the league. Like they're they're that good. And and like it, it's that, that Pacific Division is just like incredibly tough at the top. And the Central seems like every year we're used to like five teams being really good. And this year nobody's been great right it it's it's really weird to me i feel like there's almost no separation between those top 3 teams in terms of what could be expected yep. so well, yeah I, I mean i think nashville the big thing for them is they've got a lot of playoff gamers on there that you know can turn it on uh winnipeg like you said the talent can just there've been lots of games this year where i've watched winnipeg and they've played dreadful and they just out talent a team yeah and, and, and especially with their power play like how good yeah, it is it's right yeah, and it, and it went through a funk uh, around the new year, and it's starting to break out of it now. But uh, it it's just so incredibly good at generating offense, and I, I really like the Kevin Hayes trade. Mm-hmm. I love that you predicted that on the PDO cast. Yeah, I've been talking I about it for a while. Yeah, yeah I, I ended up writing an article about uh, Kevin Hayes for the Free Press based on that podcast that we did. Mm. Well, there we go. I'm excited yeah. that, that that worked out. Yeah, no, that was a. Uh... A good call. Please ignore all of the horrible calls I made over the years. Um, yes. Yeah. Only bring up the right ones. We'll we'll pull up Pierre Maguire there. That's a, yeah. That's a good way to operate. Um, y- yeah. It's and obviously moving forward for the postseason, we'll see how some of these matchups shake out. But it is to the point where like, while I say that the three best teams in the West are in the Pacific, uh, especially for Vegas, who will conceivably have to go on the road and play either San Jose or Calgary, and then if they get by that, play the other team in round two on the road Mm -hmm. again. Like, that's such a a brutal uh, gauntlet they have to run that's kind of similar to how tired out uh, Winnipeg was last year by the time they made the Western Conference Final. I could envision a scenario where one of these Central Division teams has a bit of an easier go of it through the first two rounds, and all of a sudden they come into that Western Conference Final a bit fresher, and maybe they're healthy at the right time, and all of a sudden they could conceivably make make the Stanley Cup, even though they're objectively worse than they were last year. And that's just sometimes how the NHL goes. Like part of the equation is your actual own team and talent. And then part of it is just things kind of breaking your way at the right time and you taking advantage of that window. Yeah, I think what you mean to say is that the Toronto Maple Leafs deserve an easier first round matchup. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to... Uh, is that the first... I guess you mentioned them earlier when we were talking about heavy hockey, but I think that's the first... Uh, Toronto Maple Leafs reference in the podcast, which no, I don't think I don't us. think I did. Good on us. Well, I'm I'm glad Jeez, we, we uh, should have just not mentioned that at all. Yeah, we'll edit that out. We'll edit that out. Um, <laughs> Andrew, plug some stuff. What uh, what are you working on these days? I know you're a busy man. Uh, same thing as usual. I've got the three articles for Sportsnet a week and two for the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, the Free Press stuff is pay to read. So if you're not from Winnipeg or don't have a subscription to the Free Press, uh, I'm not offended if you don't read it. But uh, yeah, that and uh, I've got uh, my podcast back with uh, Arun. We talked about Spider-Man Homecoming last week and I've got one to post today that'll probably be out slightly after the PDO cast. So listen to that. Well, I highly recommend people check out your work and I'm sure we're going to get you back on the show sometime here in the near future. And I'm I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how some of these races wind up finishing out and sort of what first round matchups we get. And and, uh, we'll have you back on then to... uh, kind of deep dive them and, and discuss how all these teams uh, match up against their own opponents. 
Absolutely, man. We'll uh, maybe we'll predict the first round of the playoffs, and then in the second round, we'll only talk about the ones we got right. Yes, uh, looking forward to it, man. Talk then. <laughs> talk soon. The Hockey Pedio Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/slash Hockey Pedio Cast.